1: KRIKA Lecture Series. My name is Ted Gerber. I'm the director of the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia, also known as KRIKA. And uh, I'm very excited uh, to be hosting today's presenter. I'm going to turn the floor over to my colleague, Yoshiko Herrera, Professor of Political Science. And she will introduce our our speaker today. And she will also moderate the Q&A following the lecture. So go ahead. Take it away, Yori. Thanks.
2: OK, uh, thank you so much, Ted. Um, it's a great pleasure today to introduce Professor Brian Taylor of Syracuse University. He is one of the leading scholars of the police, military, and security services in Russia, which you can imagine is not a topic <laughs> that easy to research. Um, he's developed a lot of expertise on this topic over time. And I think, um, increasingly, that's a topic um, of interest in comparative politics more generally in the inner workings of, of the state. Um, Professor Taylor is the author of three books by Cambridge University Press, most recently, The Code of Putinism, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. It's one of the most insightful analyses of the state and Putin um, in Russia today. There's a number of books coming out around about Putin, about the state, but I highly recommend this one. It's also available in audiobook. Uh, I noticed recently, so I, I recommend it. Um, But without further ado, let me just hand it over to Professor Brian Taylor. Thank you.
3: Great. Thanks very much, Yoey, and thanks, Ted. And thanks for uh, the invitation to be here today. Um, Let's see if I can master the screen sharing function here. Um, Hopefully, you're all seeing the slides now. Um, So we got it. Okay, great. Um, So, The outline for the talk is super simple and you could probably guess it. Oops, uh, that is not right. Um, We've already got an error at the beginning, okay. Here we go again, there's the outline. Uh, I'm gonna spend the first part of the talk talking about Putinism as I think of it uh, and explain uh, sort of the um, genesis and the the main arguments of the book that you mentioned the code of putinism book so i'm going to talk about putinism as uh, both a mentality and as a political system and then in the second part of the talk i'm going to talk about discontents by which i mean various problems that the system uh, has been encountering in the last couple of years and especially uh, over the last 12 months or so All right, so what is Putinism? How do I think of Putinism? The first thing I wanted to say about that is I don't really think of it as an ideology. If by an ideology, we mean a sort of cohesive, coherent, all-encompassing worldview, something like Marxism-Leninism or something like that. There is not any such thing in the Russian political system today. And there hasn't been in the post-Soviet period. Now that doesn't mean there aren't ideas uh, that are motivating various political actors, but there's nothing as comprehensive. I think of this more as something like Thatcherism or something like that, rather than, uh, you know, this coherent coherent ideological scheme. Uh, so I tend to use the, the word Putinism in, in two different ways. The first is as a system of rule, which I will talk about. Uh, but I think the real key thing, at least for me, is the mentality that sort of underpins the rule, what I call a code in the book. And uh, I I stole the term from an old book from the Soviet studies literature called The Code of Bolshevism. And so I was trying to sort of figure out what the underlying mentality is for for Putin and his team. And that's what I try and do at the beginning of the book. So so that sort of sets uh, the stage for the book. So the basic question for the book, Uh, is what is Putin up to? Uh, Try to explain what Putin is doing. So if you're a a student, whether a PhD student or an MA student or even an undergrad, and you're working on a thesis, that's a terrible research question, right? You you can't really get away with asking a big, broad research question like that that's sort of amorphous and hard to pin down. But I guess it's uh, one of the privileges of tenure that you can uh, write books like this and it was sort of designed for not just an academic audience, but a, a bit broader audience. That's, I guess, why there's an audiobook. book. And uh, I should note that I did not <laughs> definitely read uh, the audio book. So you will hear an actor if for some reason you want you want to hear that version. I've actually never had the, the stomach to, to listen to how it sounds being read aloud. Um, but so I basically wrote this book. What is Putin up to on a dare? Uh, a colleague was saying, you know, is there a book about Putinism that's kind of like Meryl Feinsod, How Russia is Ruled, was for Stalinism. And so I told her, well, there's this book that does this and this book that does that, but there's not really anything quite like that. And she said, well, you should write that book. And I said, well, I guess that's a challenge. And I guess I'll try and accept it. And I had some things I wanted to say when uh, trying to explain what I thought about Putin and how he operated in his political system. So uh, this is the book that came out of it. Uh, and sort of the key to the, the analysis is what I call the mentality of team Putin. And it comes out of uh, intellectually a bit of a dissatisfaction with currents in Russian politics and Russian analysis that treated Putin as a sort of cold calculating solely instrumental actor. That's not really how I saw him or many of his close associates. And, And I guess I could say more generally in terms of political science or comparative politics somewhat of a dissatisfaction with uh, purely rationalist approaches to understanding uh, politics. So I looked back to uh, a much older literature, uh, the way Max Weber in Economy and Society talks about the four different motives for human action. And instrumental rationality is one of those, Uh, but I didn't think that was enough. So the other three things that Weber talks about uh, are ideas or what he calls value rationality, but I prefer to think of as ideas. Uh, what he calls habits or tradition, uh, which I tend to think of as sort of sort of pre you know reflective ways of responding automatically to stimuli. Uh, and then what he calls affect or what I choose to think of as emotion. So uh, when I talk about the mentality or the code of Putin, what I'm thinking of is some agglomeration of the motivating ideas, habits, and emotions. And I I call it Team Putin because I think he's surrounded himself with people who, for the most part, not not entirely, obviously, but for the most part, have a similar way of looking at and perceiving the world as uh, to Putin. And so that's what the code is or the mentality. Uh, And in the book, I argue we can think of this, if we think of Russian politics as a body politic, we can think of the mentality as the nervous system that kind of controls what the other elements of the system are doing. So that's the basic conceit Uh, of the book. And I come up with like 10-12 things that I think are the core things. I'm not going to go through and talk about all these. Um, I'll just sort of put them out there so you can look at them. So statism, including great power statism, anti-Westernism, or even more specifically anti-Americanism, and conservatism or anti- or illiberalism, I see as the sort of core ideas and and statism being the most important of those. Uh, In terms of habits, I think of control order, unity, loyalty, and hypermasculinity, and then in terms of emotions, emotions related to respect or disrespect and humiliation, uh, relatedly issues about resentment, and finally, uh, feelings of vulnerability or fear. Now, uh, because this is sort of loosely Weberian, one could argue that the lines between these things are not necessarily that hard and fast, and I'm I'm happy to uh, accept that interpretation. So I don't necessarily see these as discrete categories uh, that don't bleed into each other. I think they're in some sense interrelated. So the conservatism is related to an emphasis on control and order, for example. So that's basically how I think of the code. And in the rest of the book, I try and uh, deploy it to analyze the system. Uh, so, So what are we talking about when we talk about Putinism as a system of rule? I'm interested in both the formal and informal political system, which is a A fairly common way of thinking about comparative politics in lots of countries, especially uh, countries in Eurasia. Uh, So in terms of the formal system, Russia has a political system not unlike those in many other parts of the world, an electoral authoritarian system or a hybrid regime that has these uh, public facing features of democracy, but they also uh, are really authoritarian in that the political system is rigged in such a way that the elections are not really free and fair, and there's not a, a level playing field for those opponents of the, of the ruling authorities. So the uh, initial sort of post-Soviet Russian constitution that came into being in 1993 under President Boris Yeltsin was even at the time identified as what people called the super presidentialist political system. It gave a lot of power to the president, uh, but it did also have in various places in the constitution what we might consider checks and balances so there's a, a legislature that's elected independently of the president and has some ways of restraining the president there's an independent supreme court and an independent judicial system as a whole that can offer judgments that can go against presidential wishes uh there's uh, a regional system of government. So it's a federal system with power divided between the federal government and regional governments. So there are a series of things that at least in theory in the original constitution could act as checks on the president. And they somewhat did that under uh, President Yeltsin, especially the regions and to a certain extent, uh, the Duma, one of the branches uh of the parliament and for that matter the federation council as well the other branch of parliament so there were these restraints but one of the things that happened under putin was that each time he sort of faced a political decision he said about undermining uh, those potentially restraining influences so fairly early on he did some things to weaken the regions uh he also uh made efforts to to weaken the powers of the courts to constrain Uh, him in some ways, although that was less an important part of his early period in office. And then he also did things in the sort of non-institutional realms such as, or non-formal institutional realms such as the media, uh, political parties and that sort of stuff to bring it under control. So that's why I call the system under Putin hyper-presidentialism as a formal uh, system. Uh, But just as important in Russia. Are what people refer to as networks or clans uh, we could think of them as groupings uh, interests whatever uh, but much of the action in russian politics is not about what happens at the formal institutional level but about these competing groups of political and economic elites who form uh, alliances and networks to try and advance the interests of members of the group and these networks extend down to lower levels of the political system uh, so, on the informal side, we have these clan networks that are also I- important. Uh, Gleb Pavlovsky, who is what Russians call a political technologist and was an advisor to Putin for the first uh, 11 years of Putin's rule, uh, said in one of his books about the, the Russian system that Putin is both president and boss, and I, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. So, he's president of the formal political system, but simultaneously, He's the boss of the informal system. So it's his job as arbiter between different competing groups uh, to keep everyone in check, to keep everything in balance, to make sure his position is not threatened, and to make sure that the interests of the main clans are more or less uh, respected, or if necessary, a clan can be kind of pushed away from power and things reorganized uh, a bit. And over time, I think what we saw from his first term as president starting in 2000, moving later until closer to today, uh, the clans have become less and less of a restraint on Putin and his position has become kind of more elevated. So uh, he's not just first among equals, but he's kind of in a more czar like position now where uh, he can overrule any sort of a lower level actor and impose his will if necessary, although Uh, there are reasons why he wouldn't necessarily do that all the time. Uh, And so the rest of the book, after the discussion of the formal institutions and the informal institutions, looks at the effect of Putinism as a system of rule and as a mentality on the economy, on governance in the state, and on foreign policy. All right, So, so that's a a relatively brief intro to Putinism uh, as a code and as a system. So I want to spend the rest of the time now talking about discontents. So we all have seen the memes about 2020, uh, what our plans were and how's it going and that kind of thing. And Putin had some of those same problems uh, last year. So uh, he started the year by announcing a major constitutional reform. Uh, It also was the 75th anniversary of the victory in the Great Patriotic War, what we refer to as World War II. So we had this sequence of events that were planned for the first part of the year to bring into effect the new Constitution and also celebrate this this major anniversary, which is a key sort of ideological mobilizing point for the population. Uh, All those plans went on hold with the pandemic and uh, Putin for several months now, almost a year now, has been reduced to, you know, sitting on Zoom calls like all the rest of us and like all of you are, are doing now, listening to some dude drone on, right? So uh, that was the first kind of disappointment, although he eventually did get the Constitution through, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, second thing, starting in August, there was a major political development in the neighboring country of uh, Belarus, and Belarus Uh, along with Ukraine, is probably one of the most important post-Soviet states from the point of view of Moscow. Uh, And it's very important for uh, military reasons, political reasons, economic reasons, cultural reasons, that it be seen as being part of the Russian orbit. Uh, And this uh, big series of street demonstrations, which to a certain extent continue now, although on a much smaller scale, uh, threatened the hold on power of Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, who's been in charge even longer than Putin, he's been in charge since 1994. So this was a major challenge, obviously, to the to Belarus, but it also mattered for Russia and uh, the Russian government and Putin himself had no interest in popular street protests leading to the departure from power uh, of Lukashenko without any guarantee of what might replace him. Uh, the The Russian political Uh, elite is very allergic to what they call color revolutions, which they often see as being inspired uh, by the United States and other foreign actors. Uh, So the the guy in the lower left probably needs no introduction to this audience, but there's Alexei Navalny, the opposition political figure. In 2020, uh, as we all now know, if we've watched the, the online videos about this, there was an assassination attempt against Navalny using Novichok, an illegal chemical weapon, uh, there's little doubt in my mind, and I'm happy to talk about this if people want, that uh, the Russian government was behind this assassination attempt and that Putin would have had to have authorized it. Uh, it actually ended up failing for a variety of reasons, and Navalny was taken out of Russia in a coma to Germany, where he eventually uh, you know, was able to recuperate. And while he was there, he spent some time, first of all, working on a project to prove who killed him. And they proved, to my mind, fairly convincingly that it was uh, an assassination team from the Federal Security Service or the FSB that was behind his poisoning. Uh, And then a second video, even more sensational, on so-called Putin's palace, which is pictured uh, in the inset there, uh, this massive construction in southern Russia on the Black Sea that uh, apparently was intended for Putin's use, although not directly owned uh, by Putin for obvious reasons. Uh, And then the last square shows a group of protesters in St. Petersburg. So that's Vladimir Putin's hometown. Uh, And these were from the January protests that took place after Navalny's return to Russia in January and after his arrest. Uh, There were two weekends of fairly large protests. Uh, They were especially noticeable because of the spread of the protests. So the size of the crowd in Moscow was not massive by Moscow standards, about 40,000, but there was also a similarly large crowd in St. Petersburg, which we hadn't seen in quite some time, uh, and also protests in nearly 200 other cities and towns. So that was definitely something new from those protests. And that has led to uh, uh, more of a crackdown on the opposition and of only being sentenced to several years uh, in prison. Uh, so all in all, from Putin's point of view, I would say not a particularly auspicious year, uh, but he did what, have one key success and that's the constitutional change that was enacted in the first part of the year. It eventually uh, you know, passed through the Duma and the Federation Council and the regional governments in March and then there was a popular plebiscite Uh, at the beginning of July, which was actually not constitutionally required, but was designed to legitimate uh, the process. Uh, So the Russian political system, as I already kind of uh, implied, depends on both the president and the boss controlling the formal political system and the informal political system. Uh, And my thinking on this is somewhat inspired by the work of Henry Hale. Uh, For those of you familiar with his work, he has a book called Patronal Presidentialism, which is one of the very best books, I think, written about post-Soviet Eurasian politics. Uh, And the notion is that because informal groupings matter so much in Eurasian politics, uh, that the one thing that the institutions do is it gives you sort of a focal point for power and the president is that in presidentialist systems. Uh, So the president stands at the top of a pyramid, and all the different sort of groupings are competing to influence that person. And what can happen if that individual at the top, uh, you know, either starts to decline in popularity massively and or grows too old and or is facing term limits, uh, that system can fall apart quite quickly and lead to what we call these color Uh, revolutions. So it's been very important for Putin and the people around him to make sure that there's no viable alternative seen as threatening him. Okay, Uh, Part of his popularity, I would say a decent chunk of his popularity, in fact, hinges upon the fact that when average Russians look around and think about who might be there to replace Putin, there's no sort of obvious answer to that question, and that's deliberate, Uh, and it's part of the media messaging that takes place through state television and so on. Uh, now, what happened in, in 2018, after Putin was elected to his fourth term as president, uh, was that the, the way the constitutional provision used to, to work in Russia is that presidents were uh, limited to two consecutive terms. So he did two terms, sat four years out as prime minister, and then came back into is serving uh, two more terms. So in theory, in 2024, he was going to have to step down. So this was what... Uh, Moscow and Russia's chattering classes would refer to as the 2024 problem. Putin, who's now 68, right, would be 72 by 2024. If he had to step down according to the constitution, that meant he already was a lame duck starting in June 2018 after he got reelected. Uh, and what this means in terms of the way Hale thinks about it, and I agree with him about this, is that the different groupings trying to control their political power and their economic wealth would start looking around thinking, okay, who's going to replace Putin, and maybe start to hedge their bets, or maybe even start to think that they might be the actor who can rise to the top position. So all of this turmoil about the 2024 problem could intensify and destabilize the system as you got closer to 2024. So at least one of the goals of the constitutional reform was to end all this speculation about what comes after Putin by removing the limit on him standing for election in 2024, which they did. So Putin can now, uh, according to the Constitution, at least run for re-election in 2024 and also in 2030. This was was called nullification. Uh, So, right, they zeroed out his previous terms, basically. Uh, And the idea is this stabilizes the elite and makes sure this conflict doesn't take place and spiral out of control. And if you go back and if you look at the speeches uh, that were made by Putin to the Duma by his supporters, it was always couched in terms of You know, we're still only 30 years after the Soviet collapse. Our institutions have not yet fully developed. We still face lots of challenges. We also face lots of challenges with very aggressive enemies. And so we need to solidify the system and unify it uh, around Putin. And so that was a sort of rationale, uh, which was a very different rationale from things Putin had said earlier in his presidency. Uh, He was asked in 2005, so that was at the beginning of his second term as president, whether he was planning to amend the Constitution so he could stay on as president after 2008. And he said, no, I'm not going to amend the Constitution to keep myself in power. Uh, Any country that changes the rules of the Constitution just to privilege one person, nothing will remain of that country in the long run. Uh, And in some ways, I think that 2005 Putin was right, that. what you really want to build build with a political system is not one that depends all on one person staying in power forever, but one which can institutionally transfer power from one leader to the next without too much uh, turmoil. Now, obviously, he's totally undermined that way of thinking about Russian politics with with what he has done, not only uh, by coming back to power in 2012, but also making it possible for him uh, to stay on subsequently. But at least in terms of his goals, he achieve this major goal in 2020. All right, now let's talk about uh, discontents. First one is COVID. Uh, COVID during the first part of 2020 up till uh, about June when much of Russia was in lockdown from March until June uh, had a big effect on Putin's popularity ratings. They they dipped down to their lowest level uh, ever. Um, Now, eventually, those numbers recovered because of the referendum and because they ended lockdown uh, and they're not quite as low as they they used to be. We'll talk about those in a second. Uh, so why is this a discontent? Um, first of all, I should note the major achievement uh, of the Sputnik Five. Uh, Vaccination, which uh, you know they have rolled out, they're using in Russia, they're they're making available abroad. So some people see this as a big sort of soft power coup. Uh, but if we look at the whole picture with respect to COVID, and I think the graph kind of reflects that, uh, it says something about the Russian state, where you have pockets of excellence that are allowed to flourish and develop here uh, in the medical science field, uh, but we also see. Uh, I think a failure of implementation of any kind of meaningful restrictions, uh, any any kind of even meaningful vaccination program yet that would reduce the number of excess deaths that Russia is facing. So if we look just at deaths, the, the official COVID information center in Russia says the number is 93,000, but that number uh, is not real. Even the state statistical agency has said the number of COVID fatalities is at least 131,000. That's where COVID was directly implicated in another 69,000 cases in which COVID was present. Uh, So if we use that metric, which is the one used in the United States, that's 200,000 deaths. Uh, And the number of excess deaths Russia has experienced in the last year is nearly 400,000. According to the economists, that would put Russia second in the world per capita in terms of excess deaths. So uh, to my mind, uh, a not very good response to the pandemic internally, in terms of keeping it from spreading uh, and causing lots of unhappiness and, and, uh, you know, suffering inside Russia. The other piece of this is uh, the striking notion that only 30% of Russians are saying they're willing to get vaccinated. Uh, 62% say they are not willing to get vaccinated. Uh, And so far, only 3% of Russian citizens are fully vaccinated, meaning having had their two shots. Uh, It's also notable that Putin uh, has not gotten vaccinated himself. He keeps putting it off, at least he hasn't said publicly he has. In fact, they've said publicly that he hasn't, and he's not going to do it until the end of the summer. Uh, And he's never seen publicly uh, with a mask on, Uh, and he has said when he gets vaccinated, he will not do so in public. So I think from a public health perspective, uh, it's not particularly responsible uh, behavior Now, on the other hand, is this a discontent at the popular level? Uh, It doesn't really seem so, which is kind of curious. And we can talk about why that might be the case. But if we look at opinion polling on whether people think the government response to COVID has been okay, they say, yeah, the government response uh, has been okay. Uh, So discontent number two, and this one is one that is felt much more acutely by the Russian population. And this clearly shows up in, polling, and I think it shows up in the protests that we saw uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, the economy has not been doing well really for uh, the last decade nearly. Um, so you can see from the graph on the left what's happened to annual GDP growth. And if we look at the numbers from 2014 to 2020 comprehensively, the average annual growth rate over that seven-year period is about 0.35%. So. Definitely stagnation levels every year, but one of those years, they were below uh, the international growth average. So for uh, uh, emerging market developing economy country, which Russia is to some extent, uh, it's falling further behind rather than catching up, which it would hope to do. Uh, More directly for average people, there's been declining living standards pretty much for the last seven years, again, since 2014. Uh, and we, if we average all those figures together, uh, average living standards have declined by about 10% over the last seven years. And I think that more than anything explains a lot of the deterioration uh, in Putin's approval ratings and as well uh, at least some of the protest sentiment that people uh, are feeling uh, in Russia. All right, discontent three, uh, what I refer to as eternal Putin. Um, first of all, as I've already mentioned, and here you can see it in the graph, Putin's trust levels uh, have been declining over the last sort of three, four years. Uh, so this is the open-ended question where people are asked to name a politician in which they, they believe or have trust. Uh, so back in 2017, Putin was around 60%, very high levels. Uh, That dropped in 2018 when he announced a plan to raise the retirement age uh, and then sort of settled in around 40% for quite a few years. And now, if we look over the last year, it seems to be settling in at about 30%, which is down around the historic lows for the last 20 years uh, for Vladimir Putin. Um, So there's no one close to overtaking him in the polls. Second is the prime minister, um, Shusten, who's like around 15%. Uh, But still, it's a worrying trend, I think, from the point of view of the regime. Um, Now, the referendum that took place or the plebiscite that took place on the Constitution, and it it passed quite strongly over the summer, but I think subsequent polling has shown that the Russian population is actually pretty split on whether they want Vladimir Putin to stay uh, around in power. And it's worth noting that the constitutional uh, amendments that were enacted were not just about zeroing out his term limits, there were more than 200 amendments, and a lot of those were designed to appeal to average voters, whether it was you know, conservative values or whether it was indexing pensions to the inflation rate, all of those things were put in the Constitution, which I think helped explain the vote in favor of it and not just the the provision on uh, nullification of his term limits. But if we look at polling more recently about just that provision, about a third of the population is very positive about it about a third is very negative and then the other third is about in the middle Uh, so not overwhelming support uh for this provision in the constitution and then if you look at the the final graph in the lower left corner uh would you like to see vladimir putin as president of russia after his current term expires uh this is uh from january again, we see the population pretty split. Almost 50% in favor of him staying on, but uh, over 40% opposed to him staying on. Uh, And if you look at the trajectory over the last three, four years, the two lines are getting a lot closer together, right? Whereas before it's more than 60% wanted him to stay on and only about 20% that thought he should go. uh, Those numbers have really converged on each other. So there is some discontent, and we saw this also when you look at the open-ended questions that reporters asked, uh, people participating in the protest. This was a sore point uh, for some people, okay? Uh, this I'm going to refer to as discontent uh, 3B, what I refer to as Eternal Team Putin, and this is not so much uh, a popular uh, sort of discontent, but at least potentially an elite discontent. And it's the fact that Putin has kept a team around him, close groups of friends, advisors, supporters, you know, uh, comrades in arms, however you want to think of them, who've been with him, even in the same position for a very long time. So here you see a variety of figures, I'm not going to go through all of them, Uh, but they've been in their jobs for eight years or longer, Uh, some of them as long as 20. And many of the people that you can see here, even if they've only been in their job, say, eight, 10, 12 years, they've been with Putin from the very beginning, uh, some of them since even before he became president. Uh, And so there's, you know, a bit of stagnation, not only in the economy, but also in terms of the leadership of the country. And we don't have really uh, great direct evidence of this, at least I haven't seen it. I'd be interested to hear if anyone knows about it. But Uh, you know, my impression is that people who are lower level, sort of second and third tier down in these structures, may be getting a a bit nervous and a bit annoyed that it's the same people monopolizing power now for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. We saw this in the late Soviet period when uh, the long 20 years of Brezhnev uh, and then Andropov and Trininko led to this sort of pent up demand for change among the second and third tier of members of the Communist Party. And I suspect there's a bit of that going on in some of these structures uh, today, both government structures and then the parts of the state economy like Gazprom uh, and Ross Neff. So this is something maybe to watch for going forward. There are other people who would like, you know, a a chance to, to take over at the top. Uh, and the final discontent I want to talk about is a bit more general, but it has to do with the changing nature of Russian society. Uh, so even going back to literature on the Soviet period and the Soviet Union, we know that by the 1960s, Russia became a majority uh, urban country. Uh, pretty much 99% of the population was literate by that point. Uh, higher education was spreading. You know, Everyone one who's pretty much finishing secondary education. Uh, so Russia today is a, a society in which, you know, um, 75, uh, you know, 80 percent of the people live in decent-sized towns and cities, um, where everyone is literate, where higher education is very widespread, uh, and so countries like that are often more politically open than Russia, which has a fairly closed uh, political system you know, I'm speaking obliquely here, but for those, uh, you know, political scientists in the room, it's what we think of as as modernization theory, the notion that there's some connection between countries uh, getting wealthy and modernizing and developing and open politics. Now, obviously, this is not uh, an automatic, uh, you know, fact of, it's not a law of politics, but there's a tendency, at least in that way. And Russia is relatively wealthy for a a quite authoritarian country and relatively sort of quote unquote modern in that sense. and the photo we see in the bottom left is uh, a group of soccer fans in Moscow for the World Cup in 2018. And one of the things I think, you know, as a Russianist that was really striking reading the international media reporting on the World Cup was a lot of first time visitors to Russia were surprised to find, you know, all the cool bars and cafes and restaurants and stores in all the cities where the World Cup took place, not even just Moscow and Saint Petersburg, and so uh, you know, the world became aware then uh, that Russia is actually a, a quite rich and developed, and even you know, hip and trendy country in many in many important ways. Yet this political system is, in some ways, uh, much less you know modern, if we can use that term, than the society. Um, so I wanted to just make a couple points about the graphs here. The first one. Uh, would you like to see Vladimir Putin as president of Russia? So this is the same question in the same group of data that we saw before, but it breaks it out by age. Uh, And what is striking about this, of course, is that people over 40 are those who tend to want to see Putin continue in power and people under 40, uh, the majority of them do not want to see Putin continue in power and especially strongly held sentiment uh, among those 18 to 24. Uh, And one of the things that uh, those of us who study Russian politics have been looking for for a while and expecting to see and not really seeing was some kind of generation gap uh, developing where the younger population was sort of thirsting for change, whereas the older population that was really sort of settled and content and and not as upset with how the political system operated. And for a very long time, there wasn't really that great of evidence for that. I don't think Uh, Professor Gruber may have a different perspective as a sociologist, but my sense was people weren't finding that in the research. But it started to show up more and more in the last couple of years in public opinion polling especially. And I think to a certain extent, it can be explained by transit media consumption. Uh, And what we see is in the last couple of years, and this is strikingly true for young people, more and more people are getting their news from online sources and social media, and fewer people are getting their news primarily from state television. And for a long time, uh, Putin and the Kremlin figured if they controlled state television, the political system was more or less stable and they could allow a free internet where people could blow off steam. Uh, And clearly they have decided in the last year or two that that was maybe a mistake. And they're starting to impose more and more restrictions on the internet, you may have heard how last week they experimented with throttling Twitter, trying to slow it down. And there are threats that they might uh, ban Twitter in Russia entirely starting next month, which would put them in illustrious country China, North Korea, Turkmenistan, and one other country I don't remember. But there are very few countries in the world that actually have uh, such a ban in place. But uh, this sort of renewed interest in throttling the internet has to do clearly with the Navalny phenomenon uh, who became famous most of all as a blogger and anti-corruption crusader and his famous uh, videos about elite corruption uh, but other you know elements of the internet especially YouTube Instagram TikTok uh to a lesser extent Twitter are also being looked at very suspiciously now by the Kremlin so Uh, They're they're looking for ways to control this. I I think it would be very unpopular uh, with younger audiences if they did start trying to pull Russia out of uh, the world internet. But it is something that uh, I think those sort of hardline voices around Putin have been hoping to do for a while and trying to put in place the tools to do so. And now we'll see if they're able to to carry that out if they decide to proceed. Uh, So just to conclude now. Putin, I I think, in the last couple of years, has become uh, desacralized, uh, and Putinism is adrift. So, what do I mean by desacralized? So, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, Putin's popularity went to record heights, and he was sort of seen as this sort of charismatic, extraordinary political figure who was the gatherer of Russian lands by bringing Crimea back into Russia and that sort of thing. Uh, But with the raising of the retirement age and then the economic stagnation, Uh, Russian commentators talk about how Putin has been desacralized in the last few years. And I think that's definitely true. Uh, The the basic conclusion I come to in the book and that I still would sort of stand by today is that Putinism over time uh, has put in place the conditions for economic stagnation, uh, bad governance, uh, by which I mean things like weak rule of law, uh, high levels of corruption, Uh, or revanch is foreign policy. Uh, And I haven't talked about foreign policy. If people are curious, I'm happy to talk about foreign policy and what it means that Biden called Putin the killer and all that stuff if people want in the Q&A. But we're seeing the tendency towards an aging uh, sclerotic regime that is resistant to reform economically or institutionally uh, and therefore starting to rely more and more on other means to legitimize its rule. So I don't believe the nullification and the constitutional reform actually solved the 2024 problem to a certain extent. Uh, they still need a way to justify their continuing hold on power. They still have elections. Uh, even though they're fixed, there are ways that the opposition tries to compete. Uh, they still have different sources of information available to them, They, meaning the, the population. Uh, and they're still willing to some extent to go out on the streets even in the face of state repression. So this zeroing out of the term limits, in some sense it solved the 2024 problem and that Putin now can legally run again, but it doesn't mean uh, that the population has agreed to him staying in power forever. And I think it would be a mistake for anyone to think that because he enacted this reform and constitutional amendments, that he's clear sailing to 2036. I don't think that at all. I think he's going to continue to face uh, a lot of challenges going forward. Uh, And I started with Weber, I'm going to end briefly with Machiavelli, his most famous quote, probably, Uh, it is best to be both feared and loved. However, if one cannot be both, it is better to be feared than loved. And I think uh, that's kind of where we are with Putinism now where repression is taking a larger and larger role in the political system. So, uh, you know, various Russianists and comparativists have talked about Russia as an information autocracy that doesn't rely so much on direct repression, but manipulating information. And that's clearly a very, very important part of what's happened in Russian politics under Putin. Uh, but the repression has always been there, mainly soft, um, but ways of eliminating political opposition and making sure there are no alternatives uh, to Putin. And that repression seems to be coming uh, more and more serious now. Uh, with the attempt to assassinate one of his leading political opponents. For example, uh, you know, with the crackdown on the protests being more stringent than previous ones with longer prison terms for people uh, and so on. So with that, uh, I will close my remarks and look forward to answering your questions.
2: Okay, great. Thank you so much, uh, Brian. That was fantastic. Um, okay, so our norms are that the floor is open. I'll just, I'll monitor the chat in case anybody um, ends up posting in, in the chat. Um, I'm just looking to see if there's any hands up. So you can use the raise hand function on Zoom if you wanna raise your hand. Well, maybe I'll start uh, while people are um, just uh, kind of formulating, Um, which is, okay, I think one of the big questions that people have, like, I think one big question, which you did touch on, is how long is Putin going to be around? And what is the latest round of protests, the jailing and Evalon, et cetera, mean for him, which I think you did touch on in the talk. But what I wanted to ask you is, what do you think the code per se, the code of Putin, how does that, what does that tell us about the ways in which the regime is likely to react? I mean, one question I have, and maybe others have, is why is Navalny in prison rather than, why, why haven't they killed him already, for example? I mean, we know they tried uh, and they botched it. But what, what does the code tell us about how they're going to treat Navalny or... Are they just unsure? Like what what does the code tell us about the way that the regime is going to react to the latest rounds of protests?
3: Sure, Um, so I guess I would say several things. First of all, I, I think it's important to see, at least this is how I understand Putin. Putin has this notion that the biggest problem that Russia faces is state weakness, both sort of internally and externally. Uh, and Russia has to be a great power internationally, and it has to be strong internally. And those two things are kind of linked together, right? Uh, and they're also linked together in that the external threats are seen as linked to the internal threats. Uh, so someone like Navalny is not simply a Russian patriot who is trying to bring about a better Russia. He is in fact an enemy, and to a certain extent, a traitor, right? Who Is working together with the West. And and I'm fairly convinced, you know, I can't prove this, right? One of the things about the code is I'm expecting to persuade people that I understand what's going in right between Putin's ears. Uh, And so, you know, it's based on sort of reading what he says and what the people around him say and talking to experts in Russia. uh, But I don't have magic tools to sort of get inside there. But my sense of him and the people around him, people like Patrushov, who's head of the Security Council they really believe and have believed for quite a long time, since at least 2003, 2004, that the West is out to get them and will make common cause with internal actors to try and undermine and weaken Russia from within. Uh, So I think once Navalny became more of a challenge and perceived as more of a challenge, uh, before they thought they could contain him through other means, right? Uh, And they didn't really quite wake up to how dangerous is corruption investigations were becoming in, in, until quite late. And I think after they sort of introduced the constitutional reform, uh, they were sending a signal that we're in a new political order now, or where this kind of opposition activity will not be allowed uh, because we have to unify the country in the face of, of these threats that we face. Uh, and I would say also, uh, you know, this is more instrumental, but I think it relates to the, this you know, emphasis on control and order and unity in sort of anti-pluralism, Navalny had pioneered this thing which I didn't talk about called smart voting, uh, which is basically strategic voting where they encourage people to vote for anyone but the United Russia candidate at all levels of elections. Right, So for federal elections, for the Duma, uh, for for regional elections to regional parliaments and even local uh, sort of municipal elections to always go for the candidate who has the best chance of winning who's not associated with United Russia. Uh, And they showed some success in that in elections in 2018 and 2019, and I think as they were moving forward towards the Duma elections that take place this September, they were starting to worry that this would weaken their control over the Duma uh, and also might lead to what happened in 2011-2012 when some of the systemic opposition parties, right, opposition parties that are more or less loyal to the Kremlin might start to drift away from Kremlin control. So. uh, the reason Navalny's not dead is because they botched it, but they clearly tried to kill him and they tried to kill him more than once. Uh, and now I wouldn't say the threat to his life is totally gone, uh, but I think it, it's probably more likely they're going to try and you know, lock him up and keep him you know, from communicating. And I think the next step, they're already sort of engineering. They're going after the rest of his team. There are about 10 other members of the Navalny team who are currently sitting in prison on various trumped up charges. And I think they'll keep going after them uh, because, you know, it's this last point I was making, if they can't win the election freely through information manipulation, then they'll win it through repression and keeping everyone they want off the ballot. Um, I'm not sure that totally answers the question about the code, but what I've seen since 2003-2004 is each time there's a, a decision about which way to go, even if there are people within the elite saying, you know, we should back off, we should reform, we should think about long term economic modernization, they always choose the hammer. Right. And I, I think that's part of the way Putin and the people around him, many of whom have this KGB sort of force structure background, sort of see domestic politics.
2: Yeah, thanks. That's very interesting. Um, okay. Uh, we have a question from Tracy Rue um, in the chat, which is, do you have views on the current situation, the Russian ambassador news, um, what does the code say about today's news on this reaction?
3: Sure. Um, so probably everyone's in on the story, but but just in case. So uh, yesterday uh, there was a Joe Biden interview with George Stephanopoulos in which Stephanopoulos asked him if Uh, if he thinks Putin is a killer, to which Biden said, "Mm -hmm, yeah, I do. Uh, And there's been a huge reaction on the Russian side, um, you know, from various members of, of Putin's entourage coming out and talking about how disgraceful this comment was, uh, and how it was a challenge to Russia. One Russian academic even referred to it as a declaration of war. Uh, and Putin himself was, you know, asked about it, and his response was basically, you know, people have tried to figure out how to interpret or how to translate what he said, but it's some version of "it takes one to know one," or, uh, you know, "well, I'm not, but what are you?" You know, kind of thing, um, right? It was sort of that he referred to this Russian childhood taunt. Uh, and then he actually challenged Biden to a live debate sometime you know, in the next week. Um, but they also brought back their Russian ambassador to Washington for consultations. Um, I actually think um, this is kind of a firestorm that they're using uh, for domestic political reasons. The, their strongest argument for the continuation of eternal Putin is he was responsible for helping Russia rise from its knees, standing up to the West and that sort of thing. And if you look at public opinion polling on this issue, that's what gathers the most support from Russians. This wasn't true at the beginning when what gathered the most support from Russians was economic growth and things like that. But for since Crimea, it's been about Russia's foreign policy stance, Russia being a great power again and that sort of thing. So anything to remind the population uh, about we're a great power. The West cannot tell us what to do or how to behave. You know, we cannot be insulted. I mean, even before Putin was president, when he was campaigning for president in the year 2000, I remember he was interviewed by a journalist uh, and was said the IMF has said they might like think about new limits on loans to Russia or something like that. Why does the IMF not respect us? And Putin said, anyone who doesn't respect us won't last three days. And this is sort of being used in that same way, right? It shows we're not respected, it shows they're out to get us uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, And it does play well domestically, Uh, but actually as a matter of foreign policy, I think it's gonna blow over pretty quickly.
2: Okay, thanks. Um, Okay, Karen, Evans-Romaine. Hello, thank you very much for a fascinating lecture. I'm Karen Evans-Romain.
0: I teach Russian here at UW-Madison, and I'm teaching a course on um, on uh, SME on media right now. So I'm really interested in I- exactly what you're what you're covering, and I'm curious about your perception of the dynamics of what might happen, what might send people out into the streets again. I mean, clearly he's afraid of a repeat of what happened in 2011 and 12, um, and that's that's. One of the guiding forces, and I'm curious about whether you think it may have to do with um, the upcoming elections in September, or whether it may have to do with um, whether would it be the banning of some of some platform on the internet, like like Twitter, or um, is is your sense that it may uh, that. Um, his the imprisonment of Navalny is is a technique to try to keep people out on the street from going out onto the streets in order to protect Navalny's life. So how how do you see the the uh, dynamics of what may or may not bring people out onto the streets again in the coming year?
3: Sure, um, that, that's a great question. I guess I would start by observing that we've actually seen an increase in popular protests really since 2018, right, with the response to the pension reforms. Uh, But then a series of protests, so people who track this academically have noticed and can track and show and demonstrate like an increase in protest, even before the whole more recent round of protests. Now, a lot of those tend not to be particularly political. A lot of them are about social issues and economic issues. So there have been a series of protests about waste dumps, for example, and where waste dumps are located and local reactions to that. Uh, There was a big protest a few years ago in Yekaterinburg about the talk of taking a, a public park and building a cathedral there and people were opposed to that uh, but there also have been more political protests uh, in moscow in 2019 there was a big series of political protests about uh, local duma elections for example uh, so there's been a series of things but one thing we've noticed uh, and this is on the state side because this is what i focus on more is, is they had a bifurcated policy about policing the socio-economic protests they would generally let go and have a hands-off attitude uh, about and not try and be particularly repressive. Whereas they were much more repressive about any protests that really touched directly uh, on politics. And I think the interesting question now, in light of the sort of declining living standards, uh, there are rising food prices now that have people disgruntled, will there be the willingness of people who have socioeconomic grievances to join in the political grievances? Uh, the English Russian analyst named Mark Gagliotti calls it the coalition of the fed up. And it does seem that a lot of the people who came out in January were not there just because of Navalny. In fact, some of them were there in spite of Navalny, right? They might not necessarily agree with Navalny, but they felt it was important to come out to show that they were fed up with declining living standards, with corruption, right? With state failure in sectors like healthcare and that kind of thing. So in terms of possible triggers, which was the other part of your question, uh, we certainly know that elections are a focal point for potential protest in electoral authoritarian regimes, right? It's a moment when uh, either an attempt by the opposition to establish themselves before the election or more likely a response to obvious vote rigging and fraud after the election brings out people who might not otherwise come out, because there's this one moment when they can see that the system is cheating, the system isn't fair. Uh, Clearly the Kremlin understands this and will be preparing for it. Uh, So that is something that I think we should all look for, but I can certainly see the possibility of protests before then, You know, as the weather changes, depending on what's happening with things like food prices. And a lot of these things, they can be local flare-ups right, like we saw last year in Khabarovsk, where the removal of the governor brought the biggest protests we'd seen in Habarovsk. Some people say ever, 60,000 people came out when the Kremlin removed a, a popular local governor. So there are a variety of things that can do it. And, you know, I think the opposition always hopes, well, one of these is gonna be the spark that's sort of gonna catch. Um, I don't really think we're in that kind of revolutionary situation, uh, partially because I think the state has a pretty good handle on how to to police and manage the opposition. Uh, but I do see a sort of ratcheting up of the pressure, um, you know, over the next year as we move towards the elections this September. Thank you. Yep.
2: Okay, thanks. Um next I want to call on Pete Erickson from Political Science.
4: Hey, sir, thanks for that talk. Very interesting. I, I wanted to ask maybe more of a almost explicitly foreign policy question. Um, I'm in the Army. Uh, My next assignment is probably going to be in Europe with the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. They do a lot of, for the past few years, they've been doing a lot of short deployments to Poland, to the Czech Republic, kind of on this uh, deterring Russia, deterring kind of just a little bit more action. I guess my question would be in my my understanding, the last four or five years, there have been several spots around the world, but particularly in the Middle East and then also in Europe. I'm just curious who's winning the relative advantage game and and sort of are our, are our efforts as, Ameri- as Americans with NATO, are they having any deterrent impact as far as you can tell, or is it still kind of, you know, waiting to be seen? Uh, I'm just looking for some help to interpret the last three to four years in those two particular spots in particular.
3: Sure. Um, so that, that's a good question and a hard one to answer. So I was thinking of it in terms of who's winning. Um, you know, I guess I would say in Europe, um, despite all of the problems in the United States and in West Europe, um, and I'm talking about domestic politics here more than foreign policy. I guess I still think that, quote unquote, the the, the West is winning. Um, why do I say that? Um, you know, the, the reinforcement message has been sent about Poland and the Baltics. Uh, I'm not one of those people, and it's easy for me to say this, not being in the military, but I'm not one of these people who lie awake at night worrying about a Russian probe into Estonia or Latvia, for example. I think Russian military and security elites draw a clear division between those states that are part of NATO and those that are not. Um, so I, I don't expect a challenge of that sort. I think the challenging, you know, scenarios in Europe are more about Ukraine and Belarus um, at the moment. Um, and I guess I would say about Ukraine, if we think back to before the events of Euromaidan in you know January, February, 2014, Putin's goal, and he was quite explicit about this, was to have all of Ukraine aligned with Russia and part of Russia's sphere of influence and part of Russia's economic uh, you know, union and that sort of thing. He got Crimea, uh, but he lost, I think most of the rest of Ukraine politically. And a lot of the point of the war in the Donbass the, in Southeast Ukraine that Russia has been stimulating was an attempt to sort of break Ukraine from within and to have a Russian lever over controlling Ukrainian politics. And at least now, sort of almost seven years later, that really hasn't worked. It is seven years later. That really hasn't uh, worked. And in fact, what we see in Belarus is popular strivings for a more plural and open political system, not necessarily pro Western, right? Uh, if we look at Belarusian public opinion, uh, there's still people who have very positive feelings about Russia, and that's not going to change. And their economy is closely tied to Russia. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it was Jane Austen said, the heart wants what it wants, and, you know, the people who are out in the streets in Minsk and other places uh, in Belarus, they don't look at the Russian political system as a model. They look at the European political system systems, right, a, a, as a model, a more plural democratic system. So in that sense, uh, you know, I, I'm going to embarrass myself by saying this, but I'm still kind of on board with Frank Fukuyama and that there isn't, at least in Europe, An obvious alternative ideologically to market capitalism and liberal democracy. Okay. Uh, I don't think there are lots of people in Eurasia who say, yeah, we want sort of personalistic, kleptocratic, authoritarian regimes ruling us forever. You know. Um, in terms of the Middle East, I'd say it's a different situation, but I would also say that, you know, Russia has good relations with many European country, or sorry, Middle Eastern countries, surprisingly so, right? They get on with Iran, they get on with Saudi Arabia, they get on with Egypt, they get on with Israel, they get on with Turkey, obviously Syria. It's sort of amazing in some sense that they can keep all of those sort of people on friendly, good sort of business-like terms uh, but I'm not sure U.S. interests in the Middle East are what they used to be, um, given the changing nature of energy. You know, I, I just don't see the U.S. being as invested there as it was during the Cold War and the early post-Cold War uh, period. And I'm not sure you could say Russia's actually gained a lot by its operations in Syria. Yes, it kept the Assad regime from falling. But how that benefits Russians long term or even how that benefits Putin long term I, I'm less persuaded. Uh, so I'm sort of uh, mixed on Middle East and, and relatively positively on assessing the European theater.
2: Okay, uh, we are, this is a great discussion. We're a little bit short on time and there's three people in the queue. So why don't we take the three questions just to make sure we get them all on the table and then we'll give Brian a chance to see what he can say. Um, so I'm going to start with Ted um then I'm going to uh note a question from the from the chat and then I'm happy to see Lauren McCarthy um former UW grad joining us as well okay so go ahead Ted hi
1: Brian thanks a lot you know fantastic talk a really interesting great overview um I want to ask you about modernization theory so you know I and, and by the way I'm you know I I think it um uh, you know, it's, it's gratifying to hear that uh you know you're not one of the people who sort of rejects it out of hand as, as many do. Uh, but it does seem apropos you know your point about cohort uh differences, another you know key aspect of modernization theory is the claim that you know the educated education in particular will be a fount of sort of progressive democratic modern modernizing changes. And we haven't seen that in Russia. We also haven't seen, as you mentioned until recently, these kinds of cohort differences. So, you know, and I I haven't looked at, you know, any recent survey data uh, broken down by education, but it strikes me that uh, one of the challenges for modernization theory for how, you know, we sociologists or political sociologists generally think about this is the lack of sort of differences is not the higher, we haven't seen at least thus far, the higher educated uh, play a major role in driving anti-Putin protests, opposition, and so forth, which we would expect now. So I, I have two questions. One is, is that also changing in your sense? Do you feel that education is becoming, you know, and I have a long theory, long story about why education doesn't matter, but I won't get to that. Mm-hmm. I hear your opinion. Uh, that is, is, do we see signs that, you know, education might be becoming more or the higher educated, professional elite, whatever you want to call it, is becoming more central to the opposition and related to that. Is that perhaps why we see recent measures really designed towards cracking down, asserting more uh, government control over higher education institutions and professors and scientists and so forth, which seems to be one of the major recent developments uh, that uh, we're still seeing unfold. So those are my questions, thanks. Okay,
2: okay thanks, Ted. Um, Brian, you have an, another question here from Joyce Bromley asking about the impact of cyberspace, counter cyberspace um, what impact does that have outside the clan? So maybe you could just talk about the cybersecurity environment a little bit. And last but not least, Lauren McCarthy, go ahead. Oh, you're muted. Okay, sorry. Um, I'm on my phone and I have no idea how to work these things at the same time. Um, hi, Brian, thank you for a great talk, uh, which I got to listen to while picking up my kids. Um, so I am curious, I've been thinking a lot about um, what it means to encounter the system, uh, especially through the protests and the, the increased crackdowns on policing of protests and when that might become itself mobilizing for, um, for people to, to push back against the system. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Thanks.
3: All right, Yoey, how much time do I have? You're muted now too. <laughs> oh,
2: sorry. I think around 10-ish minutes. Is that OK? Oh,
3: OK. Yeah, that's fine. Hopefully I won't use that. Um, all right, uh, I'm going to go in reverse order, so starting with Lauren and then Joyce and then Ted. And uh, I'm starting with Lauren because her undergrads at UMass Amherst were actually guinea pigs for the first draft of Code, and Putin, Code of Putinism. And they sent comments on it, including the parts that were boring and too long and hard to understand that I took out. So. I I wanted to thank Lauren publicly for that. Um, So, when will the crackdown potentially elicit kind of backlash because of the repression itself? Is basically the question. Um, And I've dabbled a bit in the political science literature on this. And by dabbled, I mean I haven't written anything about it, but like I've read some of this literature. And it's not obvious to me from what I've read if anyone can point to an obvious sort of threshold effect or tipping point when this much repression is enough, right, um, to, to drive people into the streets who otherwise wouldn't come out and that kind of thing. Um, but we certainly have seen that effect, right? We saw it in Ukraine in 2013, 2014. I think if, you know, Yanukovych had just um, let people, like, blow off steam for a few weeks, they all would have gone home, right? Uh, and instead, they sent in Berkut and started beating people up. And Yowie is... Not sure, but I, that, that was my read of things, right? Uh, you know, they sent in Burkut and they started beating people, and then more people came out in the streets, not about the EU thing, but about, you know, how Burkut was behaving. Um, and sort of the same thing in Belarus in August, right? You know, people came out about the elections, uh, and then the riot police there were so vicious in response to the protesters that more people came out, right? Uh, you know, these videos went around of people's bruises on social media and the protests grew. So this effect does seem to work in that kind of socio-political cultural space. Now, will, will it work in, in Russia at any point? Um, my sense of sort of Russian security and law enforcement agencies is that they kind of intuitively understand this. And when they can, they use uh, what Luke and Way and um, Steve Levitsky would call low intensity coercion. They don't use high intensity coercion. So they arrest people before the protests even start that they expect to be ringleaders. They use these methods of policing that actually were developed in the West to kind of kettle people and keep them from congregating in the same space. And eventually, it kind of fuses out, right? Uh, they will beat people with nightsticks, kind of thing, but they won't shoot them, um, right? So, um, and they they make the coming out on the streets illegal, and they make the fines for coming out on the streets. Reasonably high, right? And so, if you're trying to overcome the collective action problem as a protest organizer, the idea of going out and maybe getting beat, but you're not sure, uh, and maybe getting fined and arrested, but you're not sure I mean, I think it kind of works, right? Um, so, I think what might tip that is basically if there's a mistake, right? Uh, if some local commander somewhere but sort it of goes beyond the mandate uh, and uses more violence than the center would actually like them to use, uh, and people die, right? Uh, you know, and if you're in a situation in which some babushkas have got killed for some reason or another, uh, then I think um, that might bring more people out as a backlash thing. Um, if I had to guess, I, I would say that you know that probably won't happen. Uh, But, you know, Dan Treisman has a recent piece about a lot of times autocrats fall because they make stupid mistakes and, you know, this would be a mistake, it'd be an own goal, but it could happen. It it happens a lot with authoritarian regimes. So uh, that's my answer to Lauren. Uh, To Joyce, the cyber thing, um, it's clearly a domain where Russia feels like it can compete equally with the United States, which is not true of some other domains, right? Not in the economic domain uh and even not really in the military domain although they can in their neighborhood obviously but they don't have the kind of global scope for their military that the united states does Uh, but they're quite good at, at cyber um they're quite aggressive right uh as we saw in 2016 i think that surprised people not only that they would steal uh, Democratic National Committee documents, which they would try and do anyway. But they'd actually release them strategically to try and influence the election. Right? That that was that was pretty new. Um, and so I think they're going to continue to be aggressive operators there. Uh, and I think the U.S. has equal or even perhaps better capabilities. Uh, but because this is a new domain, it's very kind of risky for both sides. Right? No one knows quite where the thresholds were. It's like the early days of the nuclear competition where no one had sort of quite figured out exactly where the, the limits and where the tripping points were. Uh, and I worry that something will happen where, you know, attacks in cyberspace, cyberspace escalate to physical effects by attacks on electric grids or that kind of thing. And then will people respond militarily to that kind of thing once it's moved, you know, out of just the cyber domain into the material realm? That's I think a real concern. Um, some people have suggested we need to talk to the Russians about this and figure out where the limits are. Uh, so the trick is to do that without actually just allowing the Russians to use the conversations to figure out what we're capable of, which they would be trying to do, right? And we would be trying to do in reverse. So it's a tricky issue. Um, finally, in response to Tred, mo- uh, TED, excuse me, modernization theory and uh, especially the education issue, um, so I'm going to, you know, confess that I don't know uh, the breakdown of the, of the polling data by education that well. I'll take your word for it that we don't really see uh, much of an effect there, um, at least so far. Uh, and I'm going to posit that one of the reasons this might be true is because Russia is a modern country in a kind of odd way, in several ways. Uh, First of all, its path to modernization was through, you know, Stalinist industrialization and Soviet central control, uh, which means things like property rights protections, uh, rule of law systems are maybe not as developed as they might be if economic modernization took place through some other means. Uh, I think it's also noteworthy that the Russian economy Uh, doesn't rely that much on small and medium sized enterprises, if we compare them to other sort of upper middle income countries. It's very kind of state centric. uh, A lot of dependence, obviously, on natural resources. So then a different kind of political economy argument comes into effect uh, about the resource curse and about how the state's ability to control resource rents sort of put them around to reward people who are loyal to the regime, not only in the security agencies, but in other parts uh, of the society, I think sort of comes into effect. Uh, So even though Russia is a fairly wealthy and quote unquote modern country compared to many countries, uh, it also uh, in some ways is, you know, like a country like Saudi Arabia, not as extreme obviously, but you know, in some ways it has those dynamics. So I think that matters, Uh, And there's been some interesting work in the last sort of 10, 15 years in the Eurasian space about how the Russian middle class is not like our sort of canonical Barrington Moore notion of a private entrepreneurial sort of middle class. Uh, And This is work uh, most recently by uh, Bryn Rosenfeld, but also work by Cameron Ross and by Kelly McCann uh, that suggests that you know, middle class people who are dependent on the state are less likely to be democrats and liberals uh, than those people who are sort of entrepreneurial sort of private sector and that kind of thing uh, and there are a lot of middle class people in russia who are dependent on the state either directly or on indirectly so if you go to ikea you know, the people shopping there are not just sort of private sector lawyers or accountants. They're, you know, people who work for the FSB or the procuracy or whatever, right, or, or they work for Gazprom or Rosneft or something. So it's a different kind of dynamic that I think weakens uh, the modernization sort of theory effect. Um, how that connects to education? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I I do take your point that the state has become much more aggressive about policing, you know, know, loosely uh, said higher education and even um, secondary education, right, sending out warnings to teachers uh, not to let their kids go out to protests. Uh, I heard a story from a friend they were trying to find their kid who was like a junior high kid one day after school and he'd been bussed to some pro-Putin rally and they didn't even know about it, right? Um, so they're using the educational system to try and mold, you know, the next generation of Putin loyalists and more importantly prevent, you know, the next generation of Putin oppositionists from, you know, becoming too sort of emboldened. So. Uh, for that reason, you know, modernization theory might not have as much traction as some of us might expect or hope uh, in the Russian context.
2: Great, well, thank you so much, Ryan, for a great talk and great discussion afterwards. Um, I think this is the end of our time. So I just wanna thank uh, Krika for organizing and um, yeah, thank everybody for participating.